Well, I tell you, there is a lot of energy in the house this morning. I know that uh, several people in both services, this was their first Sunday coming back, and there's a lot of energy and excitement. But I do want to call our attention and continue to remind us that there are a host of us that are still at home online. We have not forgotten you. We love you. Uh, the body of Christ gathered at Grand Chapel are those physically gathered and those that are still joining us uh, on ho- at home. And kind of along that lines, you know, this has been a hard week for a number of people within our Groton Bible Chapel family. And even as we celebrate moms, uh, which we absolutely should do, and, and I hope uh, children and husbands and those that are involved, uh, that you do a great job today uh, celebrating the moms in your life, but at the same token, recognizing uh, that this could be a hard season for some, that they're still grieving from a loss that they had several months ago or even recently. And so I just want to kind of pull all that together this morning as we approach God's Word and just uh, lift you all up together and really ask that God would speak to us uh, through, through the Bible as we look into His Word this morning. So pray with me. Oh God, we, we come before you this morning grateful, God, grateful for your part of the body of Christ gathered here virtually and in person that call ourselves Groton Bible Chapel. And Lord, as we look to your word this morning, uh, as Johnny has already prayed, we ask that you would use your word to speak supernaturally into all the different situations and and stresses and the things that we bring this morning. Some of us are just loving the weather, excited to be out, uh, excited to celebrate Mother's Day, and yet others of us, Lord, are still home or are uh, really carrying a burden of grief. Uh, have lost someone, are struggling with something. And so God, would you by your supernatural, uh, the work of your Holy Spirit, just use your word to minister to each one with that encouragement, uh, that, that um, perhaps exhortation or even rebuke if we need that in our lives. And so we, uh, we look to you this morning as we open our, your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, it was the toy that my brother and I, and most of my friends, really desired. It was the toy that we all coveted. You see, it was the first in a series of toys. It spanned a whole uh, uh, new uh, genre, if you will, of toys within the line of Transformers. You see, we longed to have Devastator. I mean, (laughs) Devastator was awesome. What made Devastator uh, unique and desirable was that it was six Transformers, unique construction equipment, there's a shout out for you, Builders for Christ, uh, that would uh, also transform into robots, but then they could transform together into one super robot that would devastate their enemies. Now, all the middle-aged men in the room are tracking with me. I'm sorry to do this on Mother's Day, bad timing on my part. But, you know, that toy... Uh, was seriously was something that uh, kind of took the world by storm at that time in the, in the mid-80s. My brother and I actually were able to save our money over time, and we bought Devastator. In fact, I was talking to him last night. I said, hey, do we have any component parts to Devastator left? He goes, man, I got to go look. He's like, I'll let you know when I get home. I haven't heard from him yet. So, um, but in, in fact, matter of fact, there's a, a childhood friend of mine who started attending here a couple years ago, and we used to play Transformers all the time. But you know, again, what made that toy unique and special, and it spawned a whole new series of what they called combiners, was it took six unique toys with different, the robots, believe it or not, had personalities and so forth, and it brought them together in something that was, uh, as it came together, 
greater than the individual component parts, right? E pluribus unum, if you will. And uh, this morning, we're talking about a unity as Jesus prays this prayer that is certainly not about devastating enemies, but that has a particular purpose. Jesus prays for the unity of believers for a reason. And so we're going to look at that in detail uh, this morning. But we're in this series. In fact, this is the last morning in our series, From the Heart of Jesus. And if we were to to articulate what Jesus' heart is from the end of the high priestly prayer this morning, it's that Jesus' heart for us is that we would be one so that the world might be one. That we would be one as Christians. We're not talking just about here at Groton Bible Chapel. We're talking about the larger body of Christ throughout the world and throughout the centuries. That we would be one that the world would be one. That's the heart of Christ. We're going to come back to that over and over this morning. Uh, Before we look at the end of the high priestly prayer, I want to just address sort of a summary, because this morning is part two of last week is when we looked at the first two-thirds of the high priestly prayer. And Jesus prays this prayer at the end of the farewell discourses, and he begins his prayer. He prays what we called last week a, recipro- a prayer of reciprocal glory. He says, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. And we talked about last week that the glory that Jesus is praying for is a glory that's going to come through the suffering of the cross. That Jesus both prays and knows that he will ultimately bring glory to God by his obedience to the Father right to the end and to the cross. And so he prays for the Father's glory, ultimately. Then he prays for the 11, for his disciples. And he prays for all kinds of things. There are seven things that he prays for, but among them, that God would preserve and protect his disciples, that he would set them apart for the unique work that they'd be called to do. And then, uh, especially what we highlighted last week, is that they would live with joy. In fact, that his joy, the joy of Jesus, would be completed in them. Jesus prays for the disciples that they would have joy. What an important reminder for us last week. And then finally, this morning, Jesus prays, we'll look at this in just a moment, not just for the disciples at the time, but for those who will believe through his message and for the witness that the world will bear to his obedience. And so here's one of the first things that I drew from this this week. And if this has been a hard week for you, I'd encourage you in your adversity uh, to look at Jesus as a model. Jesus is ours from the cross now. He is approaching his passion. He is in his hour of greatest need. And think about this. At this this moment in his life, he prays not for his own glory uh, in an end of itself, but that his actions would glorify the Father. He's concerned about glorifying the Father, number one. Number two, he's concerned about those who are nearest and dearest to him, his 11, those who journey with him over three years. His concern is for them, for their growth, for their joy. And then finally, he's concerned about what witness his obedience will have to the world and the unity of his disciples will have to the world. You know, we could spend the whole morning on those three applications as we consider adversity in our lives. And so I'm trying to learn those lessons in my own life as I face trial and adversity. Well, as we begin this prayer this morning, we're going to read just the first four verses And we're going to, again, keep coming back to this idea that Jesus' heart is that we would be one, that the world may be one. And so we'll begin in verse 20 uh, this morning, and we'll read through verse 23, uh, at least initially. Jesus prays, I pray not only for these, that is the 11, but also for those who believe in me through their word 
May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus begins, and just kind of draw out a... a something that's really obvious, but to make it clear to us this morning, Jesus is ultimately praying for us, right? He prays for his 11 that we looked at last week. He prays for those who will believe through his message. Certainly that's kind of the, the spread of the gospel, the first century, and, and those that will come through, uh, later through Paul and Peter and James, the apostles. Uh, but ultimately, and we'll see at the, at the end of this passage, he even prays for believers all the way to the point where we will be with him one day. And so, as a point of encouragement to you this morning, Jesus, in his hour of greatest need, is praying for you and for me. Now, probably a sermon for another day that we won't spend uh, time on this morning, but in Hebrews 8, or Hebrews 7 and Romans 8, the Bible also teaches that Christ, still today, at the right hand of the Father, prays for us. That his ministry today after having risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, is to pray for us, to intercede and advocate for us. Jesus calls us to be one. And we're going to look at this idea of unity, but I'm reminded of the song we sang in Sunday school growing up here, that they will know we are Christians by our love. And, you know, if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning or you're not sure where you stand with the Lord or you're just new to the chapel or just checking all this stuff out, it is my prayer that as you uh, interact throughout the community of this place that you would know that we are Christians and ultimately that you would know some of who God is by our love and our obedience to God in this, uh, in this prayer. You know, it was, uh, there was an author who said, and I could not find the source of it. I was reading this winter at some point. He said this. He said, the greatest apologetic or the greatest defense of Christianity is the love of God's people for one another. The greatest defense, it's not intellectual, it's not, the greatest defense for Christianity is the love of God's people for each other. Now the implication of that statement has sort of a reverse idea to it, doesn't it? That when God's people are divided and, and not united, what are the implications to the watching world? So we're going to look at that. Jesus' prayer for unity is not a prayer for some kind of invisible, esoteric, or intellectual thing. It is a prayer for something that the world can see. And we're going to explore that in a little detail. And I want to begin first by defining at least a little bit, and we won't be fully comprehensive here, but what is unity? What is biblical unity? And we can begin by kind of talking about what what it is not. Unity in Christ is not uniformity. It is not uniformity. Now, we could say that about just being a part of the human family, as God has created us, right? We are not homogenous. We have personality differences. We have ethnic differences. We have all kinds of different things in terms of how we express it, just in terms of being human. And the body of Christ is even more so because out of the human family, God calls for himself a most eclectic group of people. We've talked about that over the, over the last few weeks, how the body that Jesus calls together uh, is unique. And so unity is not uniformity. And it's not uniformity organizationally. Right? We, do not, we don't know all the members of Christ belong to one particular organization. But as the New Testament teaches, we express our Christianity in local churches, which may look different and have different, uh, different um, flavors, if you will, as one of my 
local pastor friends call, calls it. We also, there's, it's not uniformity methodologically. While, while Paul and the apostles lay down certain principles, things like uh, communion and uh, baptism, certain uh, uh, sacraments and ordinances that we are to follow, there's a lot of latitude in the New Testament for how exactly to do church. And so you'll see in the, in the wider body of Christ, the greater body of Christ, different forms of liturgy, if you will, in terms of how we do worship and how we walk out our Christian faith. Uh, different discipleship models, different youth and children's ministry models throughout the body of Christ, so on and so forth. So unity is not uniformity. Unity, uh, as we go beyond that, uh, is really defined by our beliefs in Christ. And I want to share a quote with you, and I'll tell you, there's a little bit of, it's a little funny in, in uh, finding the source of this quote because uh, it, it's, I'm going to share the Richard Baxter version. I mean, Richard, Richard Baxter was an English Puritan theologian, but he wasn't the original one who coined this phrase or this sentence. It actually goes way further back in antiquity to him, but I couldn't find any scholarly agreement about who it was. In fact, there were some pretty thorough arguments one way or the other. So we're going to stick with Richard Baxter. He's a little more recent. But this is what he said. He said, in essential beliefs, we have unity or agreement, as it were. He said, in non-essential beliefs, we have liberty or, or freedom. And in all things or in all beliefs, we show charity, we show love. And so if you were to go on our website here at GBC, you would see we've actually used uh, Baxter's quote as a framework for our statement of faith and our theology. Now, some churches will spell out their theology all the way down to the smallest detail. We've chosen to draw a line at essential beliefs, uh, being things that if you call yourself part of Groton Bible Chapel, you need to line up on, and then non-essential beliefs and, and so forth. So how does this flesh out? What do we mean by that? Uh, in essential beliefs, we have unity or agreement. Within not just this church, but the body of Christ, there are certain things we need to be in agreement on to have biblical unity, to be one in Christ. Things that have to do with, for instance, God, man, sin, salvation, etc. Some basic building blocks of that. So as a couple for instances, again, not comprehensive, but the deity of Christ. Right? We need to be in agreement on the deity of Christ, that Christ was 100% God, but also the humanity of Christ, that he is 100% man, that Christ was born of a virgin, that he bodily, physically, after going to the cross, rose from the dead. He actually rose from the dead in human history. And then in terms of salvation, that we are saved through the blood of Christ shed on the cross, and that only. Or as the reformers helped us understand over 500 years ago, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We went through those, it was called the five solas, a couple of Advent seasons ago. But these are the essentials. These are the things which we say unity in Christ is built on the building blocks of these essentials. And so we have unity. Now, what about the non-essentials, where are the things that we have freedom? We can think about, I'll give two examples. One, uh, Christians universally will agree that Christ is going to return. He is going to come again. He is going to reign and rule. And grace upon grace, we will actually reign and rule with him. However, the details, the timing, how and when Christ returns and what exactly that means for the body of Christ will vary in people's understanding and how they apply or, or understand the prophetic text across the wider body of Christ. And there is freedom, there is liberty there uh, to, that we don't have to 100% agree or line up. 
Another area, and there are several, but we'll just pick on these two this morning, uh, would be the, the uh, application and administration of spiritual gifts. A couple of summers ago, we spent, uh, we did a series on spiritual gifts. We talked about all of the spiritual gifts and, and, and what it looks like to use them. And so Christians, again, universally would, would believe that when you come to faith in Christ, at some point that the Holy Spirit imbues us with gifts unique to the building up of the body of believers. But how those gifts, and particularly when we come to the sign gifts, things like healing, miracles, speaking in tongues, and so on and so forth, there would be disagreement within the body of Christ, and that's okay, within the larger body of Christ. And then we get into uh, what Paul would call the disputable matters, or in the, sort of the other beliefs. Uh, someone said to me, I think that uh, who you root for in sports teams is in, under that category. Then in that thing, we show charity, we show grace. And in all seriousness, it's okay to have dialogues. We should be sharpening each other, even in the non-essential beliefs. It may be that, that you uh, have the opportunity to get together with somebody who completely lines up differently with you in terms of Christ's second coming. Grab coffee, grab your Bibles, and in love, debate that. Spend time sorting through that. But it's not something that we should divide over. Even as we interact with other churches, even as we do ministry together within the larger body of Christ. And we could say a lot more here. I know I'm just touching on it, but Jesus isn't so focused in the passage we're exegeting this morning on the what. He's focused more on the why. Why is his heart that we would be one? Why does he pray for the unity of all believers? And we see it clearly in verses 21 and 23. He prays this, again, that we would be one so that the world would be one. And in two particular ways. Number one, that the world would believe that he was the son of God. In both verses 21 and 23, Jesus says that they would believe and know that you have sent me, Father. In other words, that he came from God Almighty. Somehow Jesus prays that Christians being one would allow people who don't know Jesus to see that this Jesus must have been more than a teacher, that he had to have come from God, that he was, in other words, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is, of course, all rooted in the Godhead, in Jesus' unique, intimate, and special relationship with the Father. Jesus makes this almost parenthetical statement, uh, although it's not quite so, in verse 22. He says that they may be one, little phrase, as we are one. And it ought to trigger something in our minds for those who have been with us studying John's gospel that over and over and over again, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I only come as the Father sent me. I only speak what the Father's given me. I and the Father are one. It is the intimacy of his relationship with the Father that is the bedrock of our ability as Christians to also be one with one another that the world might believe that he is the Son of God. Second thing, that the world might know the love of God. This is somewhat inferred in verse 23. He says that they may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So that in seeing the unity of the body of believers, the world looks in and sees a love that is different, that is unexplainable, that supersedes their understanding of love. I was reminded of... Um, 
I was listening to Dr. Dave Reed uh, teach this week, and uh, Dave Reed was a, a professor at Emmaus Bible College who retired to this area. Actually, his lovely wife, Margie, is sitting right over here, still in fellowship here, and his son, Ron, was playing guitar, and his grandson was playing drums this morning. But Dave Reed was a huge influence in my life, and he told this story when he was teaching on this passage. He said when he was first working in the secular world, he worked as an engineer in a firm where his supervisor uh, was a rather atheistic fellow who did, you know, was anti-religious or anti-Christian or whatever. And the one thing is they would talk that this guy couldn't reconcile, he couldn't really just make sense of, was the special bond of love that the handful of Christians in his company had for one another. Couldn't explain it. And it's the one thing that, that God kind of used in his life. And so that's what uh, Jesus is talking about here, that the world might know. Now, as a church, as we interact within the greater community of the body of Christ here, we certainly try to apply and live this out. And part of my own wrestlings as we get to application this morning, I think you'll see, is to do this well for the sake of what Jesus is praying. So a couple weeks ago, several of you were here uh, when we hosted, GBC hosted a local Arise worship and prayer event. And we told you before this event that it is the largest uh, or the most diverse ethnically and denominationally event that we do in this region. Uh, it's been going on for a while, and we had the opportunity uh, to host it that night. And uh, this is a great example of a group of about 20 churches that come together under the banner of the shed blood of Jesus that unites us, and we focus on those essentials and displaying unity to the world. Whereas if you polled every leader or pastor or, or people who attended this event from all those churches on some of the non-essentials, I can guarantee you there'd be all kinds of disagreement. So we focus on the essentials. And in this season that we're in right now, as the culture wrestles with what does unity and diversity look like, we got together and said, for this arise, this needs to be about saying, hey, here's the unity and diversity world that you could only hope for. It's only in the blood of Christ, in the bond that we have in the blood of Christ. And so we intentionally, out of Ephesians 3, themed the night on the oneness in Christ and talked about that from a black, brown, and white perspective. And it was a powerful night. It's a powerful. It's still on our, our Facebook page too. If you want to, if you watch it, it's about it's, a, it's about a two-hour program. But I had the opportunity to speak that night from First Peter, and I chose just just this one scripture from Peter. I want to read to you this morning. He says this. He says, "Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again." And what Peter is saying here is because of your obedience to the truth, and he defines the truth in a couple verses earlier. He's talking about our response to the gospel, to what Jesus has done on the cross. He says, because of your obedience to that, something has changed wherewith now you love the brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, with a deep brotherly affection. The Greek word there is Philadelphia, brotherly love. Because there's been a transformation through your obedience, you love each other with deep brotherly affection. Then he goes further, though, and he says, therefore, love one another constantly by, by way of reminder because you've been born again. And, and when he says love one another constantly, now he uses the Greek word agape. He's upping the ante. Now he's calling us to actively love each other with a self-giving, others-first, self-sacrificial love because he says you've been born again. In other words, because that's what Jesus has done for us. And so the love of Christ compels us, rooted in those essentials, the blood of Jesus, 
not only to a supernatural love for the brethren, but to be active in a self-giving love. And so as we do an event like this, there might be things that I and my own preferences, right, worship preferences or whatever, that wouldn't resonate with me particularly. But for the unity, as Paul will say in Ephesians 4, of the spirit in the bond of peace, we work together. We partner for the gospel. Why? So that the world might see. Powerful, powerful stuff. What I want to share with you um, just kind of where I landed in application personally and, and just kind of hand that over to you to, to kind of wrestle with and, and reflect on. Two questions that I've pondered this week in terms of uh, reflection, application. Number one, where might I be tempted to compromise for the sake of unbiblical unity? Where might I be tempted to be compromised for the sake of unbiblical unity? Listen to what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit whom you had not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, and listen to what he says, you put up with it splendidly. In other words, he's being sarcastic and saying, congratulations on your compromise. You have compromised the gospel. And so we need to ask that question, where are the areas where I might have a weakness to compromise in the gospel for the sake of, of unity? There's a lot of pressure in the culture, even within sort of some of the groups outside of the larger umbrella of Christendom, to compromise, say, on the deity of Christ. And Paul says it even more strongly in Galatians when he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, a curse be on him. In other words, when it comes to those essential beliefs, we don't budge, even for the sake of unity. At some level, the gospel is exclusive. And so I'll give you one that's rather pointed, but a little bit tough. Is that when we fellowship on a human level, as, as one of my friends calls it, uh, being brothers according to the flesh, with, with uh, folks who are part of the Mormon faith or, or that of Jehovah's Witnesses, where they teach ex explicitly that Christ was not God. There is not Christian unity there. Again, there's fellowship according to our human uh, similarity or, or being part of the human family. But that is not Christian unity. In fact, in the Mormon faith in particular, they will tell you that they received a new gospel from an angel. And so that is not biblical Unity. There is not a room for us to compromise in that particular case. I encourage you to reflect and, and wrestle with that. But the second question might be equally as important. Sort of the opposite question is there, is this. Where might I be an obstacle to biblical unity? Where might I, where might you be an obstacle to biblical unity? Paul says, we've already quoted Ephesians 4, making every effort to keep the, the unity of the spirit of peace, uh, the spirit through the bond of peace. Where is something that is ultimately about my preference or a non-essential belief that I'm actually causing division in the body and stunting something that the Holy Spirit wants to do? I can tell you that in, for instance, this Arise event, I could have singled out something that we as a church doctrinally didn't line up with, with one or two or three churches that we were partnering with. There was a non-essential belief and said, we're not going to be part of this. We need to wrestle with those things. You see, there's a balance here. Peter says uh, in, in 1 Peter 3, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another and be compassionate and humble. You see, God reveals a love that is vertical 
that is between himself and human beings by calling us to live out a love that is horizontal between brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me say that again. God reveals a love that is vertical by calling us to walk out a love that is horizontal. And there's a cost to that. We should have to wrestle and discern and say no here and say yes there. Those are the things that, that I've been wrestling this, with this week. You see, the heart of Jesus, coming back to our big point, the heart of Jesus is that we would be one, that the world would be one. It's not about us. It's about him and it's about the world, a lost world. There should be a burden that we have for the world that doesn't know Christ. We'll end this section with a quote from New Testament scholar Merrill Tenney. He says this, he says, the purpose of this unity is the maintenance of a convincing testimony before the world to the revelation of God in Christ and his love for the disciples. The purpose of this unity is the maintenance of a convincing testimony before the world. So compromise, obstacle. How do you reconcile those things in your own life? Well, let's look at the last section in John's uh, gospel here as we, look at, uh, as we come to the end of the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, however I have known you, and they have known that you have sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. And for the sake of time this morning, we're going to kind of blast through these and, and get to our conclusion. Uh, Jesus' prayer now is that believers, that is you and I and those who will come to believe in the gospel through the disciples' message, would see his glory and would experience, and I'd add the word, fully his love. Jesus is praying toward a time when we will be with him and we will behold his glory and experience the fullness of his love. In, in this time, as we wait here on this earth, as we live out our lives now, the scripture says that we see dimly, as in a mirror. And remember, the first century, a mirror was a, a piece of metal polished to a high sheen. So it wasn't like a mirror today. And so we see, but one day we will fully see. We experience, one day we will fully experience. Jesus says that this too is rooted, our ability to see the glory of Christ and, and to uh, behold or, or to experience the love of Christ is rooted in his relationship with the Father. He says, I have known you, verse 24. He keeps coming back to the intimacy of the Father. In fact, uh, as one scholar said, the glory that the Father gave the Son arose out of the love that he had with him before this world even existed. And it's a glory that Jesus longs to share with us that we would behold him at the right hand of the Father in all glory. Well, again, more we could say there, but I want to jump to the end here. And Jesus makes this promise at the end. He says, I've revealed your name to them, Father, and I will continue to reveal it to them. Jesus promises to continue to reveal the truth of who God is to his people. And we know from the previous text that he does this in two ways. He's told the disciples that it is both good for him and good for them that he goes away. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is going to come and the Holy Spirit will re reveal uh, further and deeper truths. As Zach talked about a few weeks ago, all the things that the Holy Spirit comes to do when Jesus returns to the Father. But the other way in which Jesus continues to make the Father's name known 
through the Holy Spirit is through the church. It's through you and I. It's through this unity of the bond of peace that Jesus is praying for for us. In other words, we bear some responsibility here. Uh, Psalm 145 says, one generation will commend your works to the next. And while that's sort of a a, a declarative statement, it also is is imbued with some responsibility. In other words, this church, Groton Bible Chapel, we have a responsibility to pass on the fullness of the gospel to the next generation. You say this morning, well, what is the fullness of the gospel? It is that apart from Jesus, you and I are lost And we are headed to a lost eternity that we deserve the wrath, justice, and judgment of an infinitely holy and perfect and righteous and majestic God as rebellious creatures. That with that, apart from Christ, that we are destined for what the Bible calls hell. It is a real place. But Jesus. Jesus comes. He comes as a helpless, dependent baby And he lives a perfect, sinless life that I'm not capable to live. In my place and in your place, he lives a perfect, obedient life. He fulfills the law in his life. And then he goes to a Roman cross and he pays that full penalty for my sin and for your sin. He bears the wrath and the judgment and justice of God in himself on the cross and deals with every sin we will ever commit or have committed. Amen. And as we trust in him, as we submit ourselves to him, as we surrender him, as we accept him, as we get saved, whatever language you want to apply to it, as we say, Jesus, what you've done for the cross, uh, for me on the cross is for me. And I'm trusting it in, in it and only it, your work on the cross for my salvation. And oh, by the way, then he raises from the dead, putting God's seal and stamp of approval as a sacrifice that was sufficient. That is the gospel. That is the message that we continue to proclaim, that we are responsible to proclaim. You see, as we come to Christ, we see the love of God made complete and clearly in the cross of Christ. But as we begin to walk with him, we experience the love of God in the community of Christ. We see the love of God in the cross of Christ, but we experience it as Christians in the love of Christ in his community. Uh, Years ago, you know, it's funny, and I'll conclude with with this, and we'll have a final quote. Um, My oldest son is graduating from high school, and we're excited about that, but I was thinking the other day about, well, I graduated from high school recently. (laughs) And I was thinking about an interaction that happened at my graduation party. Uh, I went to a tech school locally, and I became very close through my high school career to my shop teacher. Ironically, his name was Mr. Young, and he was nearly 70 and still in education. Um, but we became very close. He was sort of a fatherly slash grandfatherly presence. He didn't know Jesus, but a really rough exterior and really soft interior. And so we invited him to my high school graduation party. And I'll never forget what my mom told me after the party and ended and, you know, you're sweeping up the, the you know, um, streamers and whatever, after cleaning up the cake plates and whatever. And my mom said, you know, Mr. Young left with his wife about three-quarters of the way through the party. And he pulled me aside and she said he had tears welling up in his eyes. And he said, you know, I've never experienced anything quite like tonight. 
He said, this is the first, and he called it a house party. He said, this is the first house party I've ever been to where I felt something here. It was a love that was almost tangible. He said, I can't put my finger on it. I've never experienced anything like this. Thank you so much for inviting me, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't remember how my mom responded to that. But, but that's exactly what Jesus is praying for here. Now, not saying that my family and, and those who were gathered there that night from GBC and my circles as a kid uh, were perfect, but the love of Christ to this man was evident. That's what Jesus is praying for for us that we would be one, that the world would be one, that they'd see past us and they would see Christ. Final quote, again, comes from Merrill Tenney. He says this. He says, By sharing in his calling, we participate in his glory, and we are united with him and one another. God and man are together involved in bringing the new creation into being, that the world might know we might be one, that the world might be one. Will you pray with me? Oh God, this morning we've had the privilege of hearing Jesus from your words, from your final prayer right before you go to the cross on behalf of your disciples and, 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 and us. And Lord Jesus, thank you for allowing by your Holy Spirit that prayer to be recorded for us in the Gospel of John, that we would know your heart, that, Lord, we would be able to run sort of our response as Christians to a watching world through the grid of the things that you desire, that the world would know you, that they would see your love. And, Lord, I confess in my own life that at times I'm, I feel pressured to compromise on things that, that things about you, Jesus, Lord, shame on me. But Lord, other times I'm a prideful obstacle to what you want to do within the larger body of Christ and another church that maybe worships differently than we do or goes about their living out in a community of faith differently. Lord, ultimately, would you help each one of us to consider how am I being a part of a church that continues to fulfill the promise of Jesus in making your name known to the world. Who is that person in my life you're calling me to share with? Who is that believer in my life you're calling me to repent to because I've been divisive? Lord, would you lay those things on our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.